1: Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows podcast. I am your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us in growing and expanding this thing and uh, getting some feedback. That always helps us out. Um, as, you know, I'm really excited to, again, be joined by Mark Monteith. Uh, really needs no introduction, just an in- incredible basketball mind and writer. Um, Mark, how are you doing today? Doing great, Mark. Good to be with you again. Yeah, definitely. It was, uh, it's been such a long time since we last spoke. We haven't talked <laughs> in so long. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, So we have an exciting one to talk about today. I mean, all of our uh, kind of historical pods have been really fun. But this is a player who I really don't know a lot about. I- I've obviously done some digging and um, I know some uh, probably a little bit more than like the baseline person. But um, I'm really excited to kind of pick your brain on this player and his time in Indiana. Um, and Just get people to know a little bit more about him because I think uh, – obviously we're going to be talking about Chuck Person. Um, And, you know, Chuck was the rifleman, obviously, you know, the, the, one of the best nicknames in in Indiana basketball, Um, but wasn't really here for a lot of the, you know, I don't want to say he didn't have staying power in Indiana, but just in terms of looking at a guy like Reggie Miller and the playoff success that he had never really had that. So I think um, the question I would ask right away is, you know, what was, it just immediate reaction to to Chuck Person, you know, when, uh, when, when you think of his name and his time in Indiana.
0: Yeah, he was really the first Pacer to get individual, significant individual honors in their NBA history. He was Rookie of the Year, you know, in 1987, and that was kind of a revelation. I mean, that excited people because the Pacers had been so bad through the 80s, and none of the players were making all-star teams or anything, and then they rolled in with the guy who gets rookie of the year and averages, you know, like uh, 18 points a game or so mm-hmm. as rookie and uh, people got excited. Uh, he was cocky, uh, which was kind of a good thing uh, for that, that team. And really for the city, because, you know, the fan base wasn't very confident at that point. So to see a guy come in, hit big shots, uh, get a great individual honor and have some uh, arrogance about it was really I think a positive thing. Now that arrogance turned on him later. We'll talk about that, but uh, the immediate overnight sensation element of it was really a great thing. You know, Chuck was Donnie Walsh's first draft pick Donnie took over as general manager in 1986 and his draft, you know, he had the fourth pick in the draft. So he had a great opportunity awaiting him and he pulled off a savvy move basically by lying. He uh, put it out around the league, you know, all these other GMs are trying to figure out what the new guy is going to do. And they're calling him and, you know, they're assuming he's not savvy enough to be political or to mislead him. But he kept telling everybody publicly and privately, I'm going to go big in this draft and we need a big man. I'm going Mm -hmm. to go big. So that made people think he was going to take Roy Tarpley out of Michigan or William Bedford out of Memphis but he knew all along he wanted a Chuck Person if he was available, and he did did take Chuck Person, and so people kind of got mad at Donnie because he, you know, they wanted Chuck Person with the fifth or sixth pick, yeah. and he wasn't available to him. So Donnie kind of fooled everybody, and that was good for him. You know, that was a good start for him as the general manager.
1: Yeah, and I so I, I think. He, you know, we, we, we did the same thing with Reggie too, but you know, when he's drafted, first of all, it's, it's kind of funny because then all the guys that we've talked about, he's, he's drafted the highest uh, fourth overall pick, obviously. Um, so what were kind of the expectations for him coming out? Obviously it's different then because, you know, college basketball, especially if you know living in Indiana, you probably don't see Auburn super regularly. I know they were good when he was there. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's not like it is today, you know, having, I could watch any NCAA game from any corner of the country that I wanted to. Um so, so what were kind of expectations and thoughts when he was drafted? Well, yeah, people didn't
0: know him very well.
1: You're right. You know, they didn't. People around here didn't see Auburn play,
0: so they're just kind of taking what the Pacers are saying uh, at their word. And they knew he could score. They knew he could shoot. Uh, I don't remember that as being a pick that Donnie got booed for. You know, he got booed for Reggie Miller. He got booed a couple other times. I know he got booed for draft. Drafting Dale Davis. I don't remember him getting booed when announcing that Chuck Person was the pick, but people didn't know Chuck very well. There wasn't a local guy, you know, like a Steve Alford that people wanted. So I think it was just kind of a law reaction, not knowing about him. Now Chuck had just gotten married before the draft and he was wearing a white suit, you know, at the draft. That got people's attention. He just seemed to be a guy who had some flair. Yeah. And he said all the right things uh when he was drafted you know, coming into Indiana and everything. So I think it was a generally positive reaction from the fan base, but people, it wasn't overwhelmingly positive by any means because people just, just didn't know him that well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I So, you know, in terms of him first coming in, obviously, like we mentioned, he, he wins rookie of the year. Um, but I think what, what really stands out to me about him, and he's one of my favorite players to go back and watch. Like he had a really fun game, Um How would you kind of compare his game to somebody today? Like, is there a player that you would kind of point to today? Um, Hmm. Not even just on the Pacers roster, but in general, or anytime recently. Yeah. Because he had a very funky game for for back then.
0: Yeah, well, he was a shooter. First and foremost was a shooter with range. He was an athlete. I mean, I wouldn't call him a great athlete, but he could, you know, score around the basket, do some things around the basket. Uh, uh, Yeah, I had really – I'd probably have to take up too much of your time to come up with a good comparison, but he was a small forward who could shoot it uh, and had a quick release. Uh, And if you got on him too tightly, he could get into the lane and and make something happen. So he was an adequate rebounder, uh, not exceptional in that regard. I wouldn't say he was a complete player, but he certainly brought scoring and he brought uh, some confidence to the whole deal. So It's hard for me off the top of my head to give you a direct comparison. I'd have to take up too much of your time probably to do that. But uh, he was maybe somewhat one-dimensional, but he certainly injected uh, something meaningful into the Pacers at that time.
1: So it's funny. And going back and watching him a little bit too, obviously you know it's kind of low-hanging fruit to compare him to someone on the Pacers roster now, but he reminds me a little bit of like maybe a little bit more – maybe a stronger version of TJ Warren um, watching him work wow. in between was really fun. Like I, I enjoy his post game. Well, he wasn't like an incredibly efficient post player, but um, I, I like going back and watching him. I think I can't tell you how many times I've gone back to watch the uh, the Boston series, you know, yeah. which we'll get to shortly. I mean, that, that series is fantastic. Um, great jerseys, great players. I mean, just a great time for the Pacers to, to start off. Um, but yeah, so like, I mean, obviously we, we know about his game, but when that kind of came out, obviously there were other players um, who had range that played like he did. Um, but in looking at how the Pacers were first coming up with, with that playing style, how did that kind of factor into how the Pacers were being built? Because, I mean, at that time, he was kind of the franchise player.
0: Yeah, he became that, you know, became the leading scorer. You know, they had Steve Stepanovic, who was an adequate center, but not all star caliber. They had Vern Fleming, again. Adequate point guard, not all-star caliber. You know, they had other guys, but they just didn't have anybody with star power. And Chuck kind of brought that. And they they certainly lacked scoring. You know, they were finding it difficult to score. And, and that's that was the greatest need at the time, and he provided exactly that. And, uh, you know, they're, they had some pieces. Herb Williams, again, adequate at his position, but not an all-star and not that Chuck was an all-star, but he brought, you know, that rookie season of his was kind of an all-star type of performance. And it just kind of, I don't know if I'd say it did it put them over the top, but, um, you know, they did make the playoffs that year, but it was just uh, what they needed to become a decent team, I guess. They have yeah. been a decent team for so long. He gave them enough to make them, you know, at least like a 500-level team. And believe it or not, that was pretty exciting at the time, given what fans had gone through for most of
1: the 80s. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk about Chuck, because I think it's easy. Like, I think, you know, the Pacers have not won a finals in the NBA. But, I mean, they've had the great fortune of being a really consistently good team. You know, obviously not not quite ever great, but a very good team. So fans aren't used to being – a bad team. So I think that's when, in looking back at the Pacers history, there was that time when they shift over from the ABA to the NBA where they really were kind of wayward, um, in the, especially late seventies and, and into the eighties. I mean, they made the playoffs twice before 1990. Um, so obviously a, a, a massive dry stretch.
0: Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, when you've been through that kind of, uh, period where you're just year after year, you know, winning 22 games, winning 26 games, that type of thing. Uh, a 500 record is exciting. You know, that shows hope, you know, you think, oh, okay, they're headed somewhere, you know, and of course, Donnie Walsh being a first year GM, uh, it got people excited about him mm-hmm. and, you know, Jack Ramsey had come in to coach the team and he'd won an NBA championship at Portland was a well-known coaching figure. And that got people excited as well. So at the end of that 86-87 season, the fans were excited, you know, and and with some good reason. And it turned out (laughs) to lead to more disappointments, actually. You know, there was a real lull there for a while. Kind of that compares to where we are today with the Pacers. But, you know, the Pacers were a 500 team in that 86-87 season. They made the playoffs. They actually won an NBA playoff game for the first time in their history. And so coming out of that season, people were really excited about the future.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, in, in also looking at him, I think we do have to get off that right away. Where did the Rifleman name come from? Obviously, it came from shooting, but did that come when he was in the NBA or was that in in, in college?
0: Yeah, well, his middle name is Connors, Chuck mm-hmm. Connor Person. And Chuck Connors, the actor, was the Rifleman. Now, you're a younger guy. You may not be familiar. I have never heard. I've heard of the Rifleman, but I have definitely never seen it. There was a TV series in the 60s uh, called The Rifleman. And Chuck Connors was the actor. Chuck Connors played in the NBA briefly. And also, I think, might have played some professional baseball. Um, so Chuck Connors was the rifleman on TV. And when Chuck's mother was in the hospital waiting to uh, give birth, she was watching <laughs> the rifleman on television. <laughs> <laughs> and like that uh, nickname, I, you know, like Chuck Connors. So it's Chuck Connor person. Uh, and that naturally led to him having
1: the nickname of the rifleman uh because he was a shooter man that is that is really something it's funny hearing how people get their nicknames and how they get named yeah. um, and there, i might add mark
0: there was one time one of the local radio shows one time uh in the 80s late 80s when chuck was you know really a popular figure around here they got the chuck connors on the phone and they did a, a like segment with uh, chuck person
1: and chuck connors uh you know all talking at the same time and telling that story. Oh, that's funny. So before we dive into talking about playing a little bit more, I want to ask too, you know, what was he kind of like um, in terms of, you know, in the community in Indiana? Like how was he revered by, by fans um, and, and people around the team and, and just the media in general? Yeah, he was okay. You know, I wouldn't say he was great.
0: Uh, players didn't do as much in the community back then as they do now, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Expected of them now. Uh, I mean Chuck was a nice enough guy but not I wouldn't say he was exceptionally mature he to me he wasn't as mature emotionally as Reggie Miller turned out to be or some of the other guys I'd say he was just kind of average I suppose in that regard I think he never had problems with fans he occasionally had a problem with media Um, uh, you know didn't react to every situation in the best way possible. And he would admit to that now. Last time I talked to him at length was when they had that 50th anniversary stuff going on. They were bringing back players from each decade. And I did mm-hmm. a spin, uh and talked to him. He was an assistant coach at Auburn at the time. And he, you know, he'll admit to some immaturity early in his career that uh, was kind of costly for him. But he was okay. Not a bad guy by any means. Not a head case, nothing like that. Uh, he did have... A problem you know with Jack Ramsey I mean Chuck's rookie season got into his head he uh, got his ego got overblown he had a nice Mm -hmm. healthy ego coming into it and getting rookie of the year I think kind of pushed that over the top and his ego became too big and he had a hard time adapting to Jack Ramsey's old school coaching ways one example would be the Pacers had training camp at Purdue in those days and Jack Ramsey wanted his players to do a timed mile run at the beginning of training camp to, you know, test their conditioning and, and uh, advance their conditioning, that kind of thing. And Chuck wasn't into that. Chuck didn't see the point of running mile uh, and really didn't take it seriously and really lagged behind. And it was a bad look for him. I don't remember if he got fined or anything for it, what the, uh, what the impact of that was, but, you know, here you have your star player coming in and not really being in shape and and not showing interest in that mile run, that type of thing. So that was a bad look. And I, his second season performance was not as good as his first. You know, you go back and look at the stats, his uh, shooting percentages went down. Um, I think he forced more shots. Uh, and that was a problem, you know. He His second season was Reggie Miller's rookie season, and Reggie was just playing off the bench that year, Mm -hmm. 10 points a game off the bench. Uh, But Chuck, I think it kind of all got into his head, and he would admittedly say that he did not handle his success very well. And that's the theme you see a lot in the NBA is how do guys handle success? One thing to respond to failure and bear down and focus and work harder, but guys have a hard time – a lot of times with success, it gets in their head. They don't think they have to work as hard. Their ego becomes overinflated. And I think that happened with Chuck early on.
1: Most definitely. I think that's a really great point to bring up with. And we've seen that happen with, with some guys on the pastures, like obviously looking at Paul and um, how things went with him and and maybe to an extent Victor as well. And and that's not even meant as like a a bad thing. You know, it's just, it's it's not stuff that uh, people who aren't in that position are really accustomed to having to deal with like it's 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 a lot to take on as a person, especially when you're that age. You know, I can't even imagine being my age right now and and playing in the NBA, averaging twenty points per game, and getting paid the amount of money I am. Like that's it's it's a it's yeah. an it's an awkward and getting position. a lot of
0: individual uh, attention and that type of thing. Uh, it's it's human nature, you know. Yeah. That will blow up a lot of people's heads at that age. Uh, it's a challenge for the, these guys especially the guys who come out early, you know, to have immediate uh, fame, wealth, (laughs) attention and deal with it. Uh, It's really kind of impressive. I think the guys deal with it as well as they do Mm -hmm. But where it comes into play to be in a team situation where hopefully your teammates and coaches can kind of keep your ego in check and talk to you and help you through it. Um, When you get into other areas of life, like you know, rock stars (laughs) and you start getting wealth and fame at a young age and nobody to say, Hey, you're screwing this up. You know, that's when they get into real problems. So, uh, Chuck, you you know, you're right. It's happened with other guys with the Pacers and certainly around the league, but he did struggle a bit with
1: his early success and uh, fame. So as Reggie starts to come along, you know, uh, in his second season, his third season, and, and Chuck still, um, putting up his numbers and obviously 1988 89 is probably Chuck's best career year. I put us up like 22 and seven, almost four assists a game. Um, I'm pretty solid shooting efficiency. Um, how did that kind of, how did, how did that mesh? Did they really mesh on, I mean, obviously they meshed on court pretty well because they, they make the playoffs in, in an 89, 90 and 90, 91 as well. Um, but how did that kind of start working in, in the locker room and, and just off the court as well in terms of them, Reggie kind of overtaking Chuck as, as the lead player on the team.
0: Yeah, it worked. Okay. At least on the court. I don't think it was a problem in the locker room. Um, It worked. Okay. Largely because of Reggie, I think, you know, Reggie grew up with two older brothers and an older sister. And so his mindset was always to kind of defer to older people uh, to Mm -hmm. have respect for that. He liked having so-called older brothers around on the roster. He was always willing to defer offensively. He was going to be a shooter, but he never minded somebody else scoring more than him. Uh, He proved that at the end of his career when he gave up the scoring lead to Jalen Rose and you know by Reggie's last year with the Pacers, he was the fifth leading scorer. He was okay with that. So at the beginning of his career, he was okay with Chuck being the guy. He would occasionally say, "Hey, this is Chuck's team," and he wasn't just saying that because it sounded good. I think he really kind of liked it being that way. He liked being the younger brother um, who could come up and annoy people and surprise people and that kind (laughs) of thing. So it really wasn't a problem. And you go back that you mentioned that playoff series that Chuck had against Boston, that five game series in the 1991 season, you know, that was the peak of Chuck's career. He averaged like 26 a game. Reggie had been the team's leading scorer during that regular season. But then Chuck got hot, got going in the playoffs, and Reggie had no problem stepping back and letting Chuck have those moments, you know, as long as it was helping the Pacers win. You know, the Pacers won a game in Boston to open that series, and people got really excited. Then they came back and won a home game, forcing a game five back in Boston. You know, there was that was the most enthusiastic the fan base has ever been here uh, for a Pacer team in the NBA to that point. So um, the chemistry worked okay. I would say largely because Reggie was always willing to step back if Chuck had it going. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, looking at that 90, 91, uh, series, like you're mentioning, I mean, yeah. Looking at the stats right now, Chuck put up 26 points, six boards, three assists on 53% from the field and 55% from 3 on I'm pretty solid volume. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I encourage people who have not watched the series. Uh, most of the games are on YouTube, not all of them. Um, but it is really fun to go watch this team play kind of the, uh, the last legs uh, Boston team with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale. I, I always get a kick out of going back and watching that. Um, also just a really fun team overall. I mean, you have uh, Datliff as well, who I got, we'll, we'll have to do one on Datliff Shrimp someday as well, because he's, he's a really interesting character in, in Pacers history. Um, Vern Fleming, uh, LaSalle Thompson still. Uh, Rick is, is pretty young on that team. Um, I mean, it's just a young team, and they're really kind of coming into their own. Um, but of course, after this, I don't want to say that things start to fall apart but nothing really changes with chuck which and that's not meant to in, in a bad way i mean putting up 18 and, and 6 on on good efficiency is is good you know there's nothing wrong with that but i think were there kind of expectations for him to take another step as a player and that just never really happened or, or what was um what were kind of expectations around him and uh his place on the team uh around that time after that series
0: Yeah. You know, the team got stagnant. Um, You know, even when they had that series with Boston, they had been like a 500 team in the regular season. And they went through four consecutive seasons of 500 ball Mm -hmm. finished within two games of 500, four consecutive years. And so at some point, while people were excited about the first team that went 500 and made the playoffs after four years of that, people naturally are getting frustrated and wanting more and something clearly had to change. And it was becoming apparent then that Reggie Miller was getting better and better. Uh, Rick Smith was getting better and better. You had Detlef Shrimp. Uh, something was going to have to be done. And Donnie Walsh made, in my mind, the correct decision to deal Chuck because they were starting to need things other than scoring. They had scoring from Reggie Miller, from Rick Smith, from Shrimp, um, and they needed something else to adjust the chemistry. And Chuck, was expendable in my mind because he just lacked the discipline uh, that Reggie Miller had as a score, uh, even in that series with Boston, for example, game five, they go back to Boston uh, with a chance to knock off the Celtics and everybody here is really excited and Chuck's shooting the ball. Well, but at the end of that game and I, you've watched it, he takes bad shots. Yeah, He starts throwing up 30 footers and stuff. And he said after that game that, well, wow, I was going to go down shooting, you know, one way or the other, you know, I was going down shooting. Well, you know, you never saw Reggie Miller do that. You know, think about Reggie Miller's moments. He never took bad shots. You know, the shots plays were run for him to get off the shot. You never saw Reggie Miller just firing up 30 footers, you know, and mm-hmm. and, and talking like that. That was the difference between those two guys. Reggie Miller had the extra level of discipline and fundamentals in the right approach to basketball, whereas Chuck's ego got in his way. Um, That, to me, is one of the more impressive things about Reggie Miller, where he would hit all these big shots and have all these big playoff moments, but he did it without forcing things. He did it by staying within the team concept. So that made Chuck expendable. He got traded to Minnesota. Uh, The Pacers felt they needed a point guard to replace Vern Fleming, and uh, Poo Richardson was part of that trade, and Sam Mitchell, too. And Sam Mitchell became an important role player. Poo Richardson did not work out as hoped, but it was just something that had to be done. And the Pacers did get better after trading Chuck Person. You know, uh, when Larry Brown came in with that nucleus of Miller and uh, Smiths, uh, you know, they traded Detlef Schrempf uh, that first year, which is a whole separate issue. But uh, the Pacers suddenly became a team in the conference finals because they played defense and had better chemistry. And trading Chuck Person is one of the things that made that happen.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by cars.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in looking at Chuck's career, this is where he kind of starts to take a downturn. Um, Obviously doesn't play as well in Minnesota, massive drops in efficiency. You know, part of that is playing on a much worse team in Minnesota Um, to be Frank until I had really gone through and and dove into his career. I didn't even realize that Minnesota was a team that early on, you know, in in the early (laughs) nineties, whenever I think of Minnesota, the first thing I think of is Kevin Garnett, you know, I, 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 don't even contemplate that there was anything before Kevin Garnett. Um, and some people might not even remember that Kevin Garnett was with the Timberwolves. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that starts to happen. He ends up as a role player in San Antonio um, because he's, he starts dealing with, isn't it, I believe it's the, either this first or second year. No, it's the second year in Minnesota. He has a back injury or something like that, that really starts to kind of hamper his athletic ability. Um, and yeah. He slides I- into more of a role role playing spot.
0: Right. I can't remember which team he was on when it happened. It might have been Minnesota, but he was on an airplane and like a seat gave way or something upon takeoff. And he it jolted him back and he had some kind of back injury. And I'm pretty sure he got a settlement out of that. But that I guess did contribute, you know, to his demise. He played a long time in the league, mm-hmm. you know, San Antonio. He was in Seattle briefly. Uh, but yeah, he was never the same player, never as good after leaving the Pacers certainly. Um, and again, you know, he would, I think admit that he would like to go back and do some things differently the second time around, but you know, nobody gets that opportunity. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, certainly. And well, he actually came back around to the Pacers. I, I hadn't even realized this until I was reading up on him a couple of days ago. Um, he coached from, from Oh five to Oh seven. He was with the Pacers as an assistant. Um, I hadn't realized how long he coached. I knew obviously that he was at Auburn because of, of what happened to Auburn. Um, yeah which well, is unfortunate uh, in its own right. Um, but in terms of just looking at his time as a pacer and in the league, um, ha, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because trying to kind of place guys like him in history uh, is funny to me because I think, it, you know, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. It's easier to discount and, and forget about, you know, all those times when uh, the team was um, – just a good, like, like an okay team, you know, like a 40 win team making the playoffs losing in the first round um, because the team has been so much better uh, over the last two decades. Um, but I always point back to it because I, I grew up in Cleveland. So being by the Cavaliers, obviously, um, you know, I, I went the, the, the first time when LeBron was not there, that was not a fun time to be a, a, around the Cleveland Cavaliers. Let me tell you. So I think the fact that the team even makes the playoffs is a huge thing. So like we're mentioning with, the drought that they had, and then making that, uh, I it's I don't want to say he's a building block, but but Chuck was really fundamental in being part of um, that group that that led to this team becoming a, a conference finals team and becoming the perennial playoff contender that that was built under you know Larry Bird and and Rick Carlisle and Larry Brown.
0: Yeah, he he helped the franchise take a definite step forward. No question about it. You know, he certainly made a contribution. Was a popular player. And when he was traded, it's not like the fans were really, really happy about it necessarily. You know, you'll still find fans who think that should never have happened. But I think, you know, really history shows that it was a good trade for the Pacers. But he certainly took the Pacers to another level. He was the piece, I guess, that made them an average team. And they were young. They were were still a young team for the most part at that time. So uh, he deserves credit for that. And as you mentioned, he did come back to the franchise in a coaching capacity and in just kind of a front office capacity. Mm -hmm. Uh, He actually kind of became Ron Artest's bodyguard or whatever you want to call it, mentor for a while. He would, you know, when Artest was having issues and they had Ron going to a either a sports psychologist or a psychologist or whatever, Chuck was the guy who would accompany him. If you go back and look at the video of the brawl up at the Palace of Auburn Hills, it's Chuck Person out there on the court holding Ron Artest and walking Artest to the locker room and trying to shield him from all the things the fans were throwing. You know, So that was kind of Chuck's role with the team at that point. And then he moved on. Gosh, he was with the Lakers when our was there. I mean, it was almost like he became our personal coach or whatever mentor and followed him around the league for a while. Uh, and then he went back to college, you know, and, you know, Chuck wants to be a coach. Uh, I think he could be a good one. I mean, he's certainly smart enough and he's got, you know, enough of a personality that I think he could be a leader with the maturity he's gained over the years. Uh, but he's kind of got to revive his career right now. He got caught up in some things at Auburn. Uh, so we'll see, but kind of in summary, you know, he certainly was a major contributor to the Pacers. You can't go back to that draft and say, Oh, they should have taken that guy. You know, yeah. it wasn't a strong draft, you know, you can't say they should have taken Roy Tarpley or William Bedford or Kenny Walker, the guys who went after Chuck. So good draft pick, made a big difference, brought some attention to the Pacers um it just reached a point where another change had to be made and that happens all the time in sports
1: yeah yeah uh, so I, I mean another question i have uh the most iconic jersey in Pacers history maybe the the you know the old uh kind of sky blue 45 rifleman jersey on the flojo oh
0: the flojo yeah yeah it's got
1: to think- be i think i mean it's it's not the most worn jersey that i've ever seen but in terms of you know in talking to people who are fans of the team and and just media in general too. I mean, one of the most iconic jerseys in in the franchise, no doubt.
0: Yeah. You're talking about the Flojo specifically?
1: Yes. Oh yeah. Well, I mean the 45 rifle. The Chuck number, Persons so. Flojo. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. I don't know about Chuck Persons number, but certainly the Flojo would have to stand as the most popular uh, uniform in the Pacers history. It was to this day, it's unique. You know, there's never been anything like it. Most uniforms are kind of uh uh, an imitation of somebody else's uniform, like the you know, mm-hmm. pinstripes that they wore in the '90s, um, had were a copy of what Orlando wore. So the float shows were unique. Florence Griffith Joyner, her who designed them, was a major sports figure, a glamorous sports figure, an Olympic champion, and so they did. The Pacers did something really unique and bold at that time, and that kind of represented their move into the '90s. They changed their logo. Uh, the, you know, you know, they looked better, the team was getting better, and it was an indication of real progress. So it's kind of interesting to me how the Flojo uniform to this day still stands out as their best, uh, as the most favorite. And I'm sure you remember what four or five years ago, they were wearing them as a retro and they were going undefeated in that uniform. They had that season where they had to go to Memphis for the last game of the season to try to make the playoffs. And they got permission from the league. To wear them again because you're not supposed to wear your retro more than what five times or something. Mm-hmm. The permission to wear them again because they were undefeated in them, that kind of stuff. The flowjos stand tall, and Chuck person was certainly one of the major figures in those flowjos.
1: Yeah, I'm hopeful that they'll go back to that jersey at some point. I know it's probably unlikely considering I that was that Mitchell and Ness at that point, or I'm because I'm trying to think who is obviously I mean they can't go back to it because it wasn't Nike, so um, but. Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful. I, I love that jersey, and I'm still waiting to see the City jersey for the Pacers this year. I think they're one of the few teams that haven't released it yet.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen it either. You know, in little detail, there was actually an alternate Flojo that, that she came up with that in, that added some green to it, and I've seen it. You know, Donnie Walsh had it in a desk drawer somewhere. You know, they never wore it. but mm-hmm. they There was actually an alternate version of the Flojo that she offered up to them. That included some green, and it looked good. But I don't, you know, I don't know that it would have been a great idea to wear
1: them. But you know, that was out there; that was a possibility.
0: And so, uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to say my uh, my favorite jersey all time. Actually, I, as much as I love the pinstripes, and I personally am not the biggest FloJo person. I think they look nice, but they're not my personal favorite. Because I, I like just like more simple things. The uh, in Larry Brown's first year when Detlef was still on the team um those are my favorite jerseys they're really just kind of plain script pacers ones on the front that it's just the white I think there's like one or two stripes on it um pretty clean like I you know I've never thought anything it's it's not anything crazy but it just it kind of just always stands out to me as like yeah this jersey's it's cool it reminds me of the pacers not like anything flashy but it stands out
0: yeah well you don't mean Larry Brown's first season do you because they were wearing
1: uh, I might not be married Larry Brown. I well, they, remember
0: they wore flow Joe's right against Boston in that series. And Bob Hill was the coach. And then Larry Brown came in and
1: they still wore the flow Joe's. Okay. So not Larry Brown's first season, but <sighs> yeah, it was, they
0: had a uniform in the eighties that has never been used as uh, a retro. that I think is really good. It had Indiana and script across the front and they had a wide stripe on the side. You know, I mean, I uh, You'd have to look at it to
1: see it. I'm looking the- up the jerseys right now because I, I can picture it in my head, but I I can't. I, I'm trying to remember it. I, <laughs> I mean, I always like my favorite jerseys of all time, actually, the one that I wear the most, as much as, you know, he's not even a star player necessarily. But my, I have the Dale Davis jersey um, when it was like it almost like the sunrise, um, like the sun sunrise, like stripes that come down, like the diagonal stripes. Um, uh-huh. I, I love those jerseys as well. From those, those are Larry Brown's tenure, I believe. Um, when yeah, they well, were Larry Brown the was all FloJo.
0: I think Larry, Larry Brown was all FloJo, and uh, they brought in the pinstripes when Larry Bird took over.
1: Mm.
0: FloJo's lasted from about 1990 to 1997, or something like that. Uh, so we'd have to go back and double check all that. But they were they were here for quite a while. Then they wanted to make a change when Bird came in. So they went to the pinstripes for those years and then they changed again, I believe when bird left and uh, Isaiah Thomas took over as coach. So I'd have to, but I can't be sure of that, but uniforms are funny. You know, people, they, they stick in people's minds and they're important to fans and you know, whatever the uniform was when you're of a certain age and that the team was good at that time, that's probably going to be your favorite, you know, the, uh, cause that had, that's the uniform that brought you the fondest memories of the uh, team, so uh, you know they had. There's an ABA uniform they had that was a copy of the Atlanta Hawks that people remember fondly. They've worn that as a retro before. That kind of goes across the chest and down the other side, the stripe. Mm-hmm. And then there's that one in the '80s though that I think is a forgotten one that you know Billy Knight wore, for example, in that era, where they had Indiana and script across the top, and they had a really wide stripe down the side, and that one's never been used. That's the one I would suggest. They bring back some time, but, um, but, uh, you know, the Flojos. though, I think if you took a poll among all
1: pacer fans, I bet the Flojos would win out as the most popular. Oh, easily. Um, so I think in closing, the last thing that, that I want to ask, um, before we get out of here, um, just in, in talking about Chuck person, is there one memory that that most people maybe wouldn't recall or, or think about that, that kind of sums up his time in Indiana?
0: Mm. Yeah, well, the the prompt, predominant memory would be his playoff series against Boston, and you know maybe this kind of tells you something about Chuck. And you could say it's maturity or whatever. I don't know how you would describe it, but he, you know, had big game in Game Two against Boston. Everybody got excited. They came back for Game Three in that series and lost, and he played poorly. He was not a factor in the Game Three loss back here. And so when he comes to Market Square Arena for game four, he sticks his head in Bob Hill's office and says something like, it's a beautiful day in Zimbabwe. And, <laughs> you know, and Bob Hill said later, that's when I knew he was going to have a great game. And person did come out in game four and have a big game. And the Pacers won and forced to game five. Uh, Chuck was talking trash with Bird. You know, he was really in his element, really at his peak in that mm-hmm. game. But, you know, that quote before the game, it's a it's a beautiful day in Zimbabwe. You know, that's that's funny. That's like, you know, that I don't know what was going through his head. Um, I guess, you know, he was just trying to be loose or that type of thing. Maybe he had put too much pressure on himself the previous game. But that's not the kind of thing I ever heard Reggie Miller say or some others, you know. You know, Reggie was the guy who got there early, went through a very rigid discipline pregame preparation of stretching and shooting out on the court. You know, getting there three hours before the tip off, all that kind of stuff, massage, you know, and Chuck Person had a different way of going about it. And on that particular night, it paid off for him. But in the long run, it did not pay off for him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's it, it, that's it's funny, too, just because in talking about shooters like Reggie. Um, I remember reading a story about, about Ray Allen's preparation, um, and what he would do before games and same thing too, obviously at a different, different level even, but, but buddy healed, there was a really great article that came out from ESPN when he was at Oklahoma talking about his, uh, he would spend, I think it was three or four hours a day shooting even like, you know, in season during school, like the school year on top of going to school and everything um so it's it's kind of funny that's another well that's another thing we'll have to keep on the back of our mind talking about just the um the the way that shooters pre- pre- uh prepare compared to everyone else is is at a whole other level but um this was uh this was a fun pod i'm i'm looking forward to doing the next one we have a, some a couple other uh exciting players to talk about with some really interesting times um in indiana of course if you haven't already go follow Mark and what, what he does. His, his work is fantastic. Obviously, markmonteith.com. Uh, go get your subscription there. It's a $20 lifetime fee. Um, it's completely worth it. I was going through it today, of course, and Mark just has a lot of awesome interviews, stories, everything throughout his entire career as one of the best sports writers in the state of Indiana. So, of course, go follow that. Uh, Mark, do you have any parting words before we get out of here? Indiana, unfortunately, lost, but only by a touchdown to Ohio State. So not too they bad. They kept it close, didn't they? That they kept really... it way closer than I was expecting. I had my eye on it the entire time. Like, going <laughs> to happen. Same here. Yeah.
0: Same here. You know, that, you know, is, it gets to the old moral victory type of thing. That's not a bad loss for Indiana yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. It represents a step forward for them. You know, you could say just like the Pacers losing to Boston in five games in the playoffs was a step forward for the franchise A loss like this, I think, represents a step forward for Indiana. You see that in sports. You know, you don't have to win to take steps forward. You know, you could have a great performance, uh, even in a loss, if you're playing against a team that's a lot better than you. So not not a bad day for Indiana by any means.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, Mark, this was fun. Thank you again for coming on to everyone listening. Have a good rest of your day, and thank you
0: for listening.